if uh, heaven is not ethnically segregated, then the church shouldn't be ethnically segregated. If the New Testament church wasn't ethnically segregated, then why are we? Hey there, friends. Welcome to another very special edition of The Link. Today, we have a guest with us who happened to be in town training our staff about a very important cultural and theological topic. I think we all know that over the last year or so, there's been heightened polarization in our culture and society, in particular, divisiveness around race and ethnicity. And so one of the things that the church has to really wrestle with is how do we show gospel light in a very divided culture? In other words, how do we show unity and diversity? And I think that is unique to the New Testament. I think that's unique to the Christian church throughout all ages, but I think it's nonetheless something that doesn't come naturally, in particular to this generation of Christians, and something that we need to press into. And so we as a staff and leaders have been going through a very uh, unique book called Multi-Ethnic Conversations. And the author again is with me, uh, Mark Demise. Dr. Mark Demise is the founding pastor of Mosaic Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. You'll hear a little bit about their story today. He's also the co-founder and president of Mosaic's Global Network, which has been at the forefront of being able to bring unity and diversity together for the church for some time now. I've been learning from Mark for uh, several years and so good to have you with us all the way from Little Rock, Arkansas. Appreciate you. How yeah, great you? to be with you. It's so much uh, wonderful to be at Woodside and get a chance to meet your staff and be with you in context. It's really fun. Yeah, we have, uh, I think, done three events already today. So I appreciate you having some steam. But let's just talk about how you got into this work of being able to help the church bridge the ethnic divide so that we can reflect the beauty of God, the, the grace and sovereignty of God in diverse communities of believers who uh, walk, work, and worship God together. Yeah, you know, in my case, uh, Chris, uh, born out of wedlock, single parent home, 1961. So I had that economic issue, no father in the home. But fast forward, after I became a believer, uh, I spent 18 years as a student ministries pastor, the final eight of those at an amazing church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, I got there in 93. By 01, it had grown from 2,000 to 5,000 people. My youth group from 150 to 600. Uh, I was in the top 2% of youth pastors paid in America, built a $3.5 million student center. I was living the dream until one day I looked around this otherwise well-known and amazing church uh, and realized the only people of color there were janitors. That was 1997, and that began to bother me. I wasn't sure in the moment why that bothered my spirit, but something about that wasn't right. And that essentially, even though I continued to serve in that church for another four years, in my spare time, so to speak, I uh, used my master's in exegetical theology at the time uh, to really do my own homework in terms of the New Testament, the nature of the New Testament church. Uh, were they systemically segregated? Did Jewish believers go to one church, Gentiles to another? I came to realize that every church in the New Testament outside of Jerusalem was what we would call today a healthy multi-ethnic church, as Paul defines in Galatians 3, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, uh, as you said, willing themselves to walk, work, and worship God together as one. And, and that, uh, that was that demonstration along with the proclamation, but this demonstration of the power of the gospel to, 
see Christ lifted up and draw all people, not just some people, to him in the local church that really advanced the credibility and the message of the word in the first century. So once that got on my bones and my belly and the theology, man, I was sold just like Barnabas. I went to Antioch and I've been there ever since. Yeah, so when we talk about, uh, some people have called it ethnic conciliation, some people call it race reconciliation, all of that has its own baggage with it, if you will. I know you enough to know that all of this for you starts and ends with the question, what is the gospel? So some will say, why should we even press into uh, these discussions? And I want it to be clear that we don't just take up uh, these uh, discussions in a reactionary way. It's not just because of the lightning rod issues that are happening in the culture. Those will continue to happen. But we have to be driven by the gospel. So let's start with that question, Mark. Simple question, uh, what is the gospel? Yeah, of course the gospel uh, is Christ, uh, we being reconciled, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace through faith, through the redemption that comes with the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, but actually the word gospel just means good news. And in fact, in the New Testament, Paul has his own good news rooted in this gospel of redemption and reconciliation through faith in Christ. And his good news is this message to the Gentiles. Now, remember, there were the Jews, but here are the Gentiles, these others. And Paul makes the case throughout his life and his letters, throughout his uh, writings, that, uh, that salvation is not just for one people group, it's for all people groups. That the local church is not just for one people group, it's for all people groups. And the coming kingdom of God is not just for one people group, it's for all people groups. He explains this in Romans, uh, the book of Romans, for instance. And so all that's to say, of course, generally we know. That's right. It's good news uh, of salvation, local church, kingdom of God. So most of us, when we say the gospel, we merely think of that word being applied to redemption, atonement through faith in Jesus Christ. And it should be. I call that gospel the capital G gospel. But the fullness of the gospel that Paul talks about is the implication of that gospel on individual lives and salvation and, and also together as we're reconciled in the local church through the blood of Christ to be a credible witness of the power of the gospel to transform and to save all lives, not just some. And so it's not about racial reconciliation. It's about reconciling men and women to God through faith in Christ individually and collectively reconciling ourselves to the principles and practices of the first century church in which a diverse men and women willed themselves again to walk, work, worship God together as one so that we can specifically in these times advance a credible message in a painfully polarized and cynical society. Yeah, my, uh, I got a good friend who uses uh, a bike as an analogy where he says there's two pedals to the gospel, right? And we've talked about the one pedal, which is the vertical reconciliation the gospel brings, but we haven't talked about the second pedal enough, which is the horizontal reconciliation that the gospel brings. And so we're trying to win this, this race to win men and women to the gospel using only one pedal uh, for the gospel. And so I love what you've called us to and what Paul really calls us to. Why haven't we seen that in the gospel? Why have we only seen the vertical aspects of the gospel, but not the horizontal? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, Chris. I've asked myself that question literally since 1997. I certainly don't have an empirical data on that. But, you know, my guess is uh, obviously the way 500 years ago reformers were looking at that, breaking away from the Catholic Church and focusing, uh, as Martin Luther did, on salvation by faith alone and, and, and returning that. But there's, just like everything, it's not all understood. And and I, I share with people uh, today uh, often that it's not that we were taught wrong, it's that we're taught incomplete. Yeah, yeah. 
And one of the things that um, I have found interesting, because, you know, we always say, and I know you, uh, in your educational experience, we, we talk about how the church is to inform culture, not the other way around. But really, when you think about that, I get that, and I, I believe that, but the, there, there's something else about that, and that is that culture and the times of culture throughout times always is informing over the last 2,000 years of the church because it's forcing us, what's going on in culture yes. forces us to think more yeah. deeply about Scripture than we might otherwise have done. And we see that in a variety of epochs of history. Even in the Old Testament, the men of Issachar understood the times, the Word yeah. of God says, and they knew what was right for Israel to do in that moment. So it's not that culture is informing us on this, but the, the shifts and the uh, uh, what's going on in culture is forcing us to think deeper about things than we have previously thought. And that's certainly true in the discussion we're having today about building healthy, multi-ethnic, and economically diverse churches for the sake of the gospel. Yeah, and I'll just add in, I think that w along the way in the church growth movement that really kicks in in the 70s and rides through the 80s and 90s, uh, the goal was numeric growth over spiritual growth. And if maturity in Christ is the goal, that ultimately it's less about numbers uh, of who gathers, though we want as many people as possible to be reached with the gospel, but it's more about am I growing mature men and women in Christ, then I think we begin to see the challenges of the gospel against my preferences. Whereas if it's just about who can grow the fastest numbers, and it's all about meeting preferences because obviously that, that tends to work. But let's go to Revelation 7 and 9 because I think that provokes a question. Is that the ultimate goal? And what does Revelation 7 and 9 give us a picture of? Yeah, Revelation 7 and 9 is the end game, right, uh, for the entire church, both in the past, present, and future. We will all be there someday, walking, working, worshiping God together as one. I don't know what the work is like, but I know we'll be there worshiping, right? Revelation 7 and 9, we'll be walking together we will be collectively the eternal body and bride of Christ. Revelation 7, 9, uh, every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. So there's these distinctions, not that divide, but that are united, that are celebrated, uh, yes. that are there, even modeled in the Trinity, and the unity and the diversity of the Trinity. So Revelation 7, 9 is where the church is heading. I believe the biblical narrative, the arc of the biblical narrative, leads us to multi-ethnicity. Of course, Christ taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we know this is the way heaven is, uh, Christ lifted up all people into himself, certainly we should be pursuing that here in the local yes. church on earth as well. And so one of the things I've heard you say over and over again, Mark, is that if uh, heaven is not ethnically segregated, then the church shouldn't be ethnically segregated. If the New Testament church wasn't ethnically segregated, then why are we? Yeah, well, I think you touched on it. I, I shared a reason I, there's, you know, again, speculation, but you touched on this, Chris. In 1972, very specifically, um, there was a principle put forth in the American church, and that principle suggested in a, that it was biblical for church planters and, and, and church planning, growth, and development, again, measured effectiveness by size, uh, to target people groups to plant, grow, and develop a church. So you target African-Americans, plant an African-American church. You target white people living in the suburbs, plant a white church living in the suburb. And you give those folks, whatever they are, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, whatever they give them everything they want, almost like in a marketing way, right? You determine what are the needs, the desires, the preferences, the past experience, the personality of this collective people group, and you pitch a church uh, to do this. Now, in 1972, that principle... 
um, was baked in, if you will, to the American church. And so literally for 50 years, or certainly a good 30 or 40 before, in a sense, uh, folks like me began to challenge that from a theological and biblical view. Uh, but that was a 30, 40 year head start on this misappropriation of this principle. And so it's baked into the American yes. psyche and the church as if it's biblical. The problem is it's a principle that applies to evangelism and discipleship, but not for the church. And there's a fine line or distinction in that. That principle for folks watching is called the homogeneous unit principle. So uh, all that's to say is that is a very structural reason Yes. why that what is otherwise natural because you know i think one of the greek philosophers said birds of a feather flock together we have historic uh racism and systemic issues in this country that forced segregated churches yes. but in in more modern times very specifically that erroneous that principle was misappropriated yeah. and it led to what we thought and now the problem is it's led to unintended consequences because we have very large uh but segregated churches and in an increasingly diverse society, our message of God's love for all people proclaimed from otherwise systemically segregated churches is undermined because society doesn't get it. They see that we love our own people, but not all people like the Hittites yes. have their own gods, the Egyptians, the Phoenicians. That's how it's playing in Peoria, so to speak. And we've got to correct that. Yeah, I think that this is an important point to drive home that uh, where we are right now, for all intents and purposes, was not because of people with nefarious intent. It's the unintended consequences of a very well-intentioned desire to reach people, to plant churches that grow, reach communities, and by the way, it worked. And, uh, and the next thing you know, though, you find that, man, uh, we're not demonstrating the power of the gospel to reach across cultural barriers to unite people who otherwise, in a, in a broader culture, are divided. And that's why I want to keep bringing the church back to unity and diversity because we're not seeing it. We're seeing groups walk away from one another, but we're not seeing people who are willing themselves through the power of the Spirit to walk, work, and worship God together. So let's talk about what this does to my neighbor when my neighbor sees this because I'm just going to assume that all of my wonderful viewers, right, that are members of Woodside or other great churches are deeply desiring to reach their neighbors with the gospel. So the first question is, who is my neighbor? The second question is, how does having a diverse church impact them? Yeah, so in terms of the question, who is my neighbor, that's defined by Jesus in Luke chapter 10 in the story of the Good Samaritan. And most people who read that story, reflect on it, even preach on it, uh, they make that story about, uh, here's what Jesus was teaching, when somebody's down and out, help them. Uh, certainly we can learn that, but that's not the precision exegesis that should be done on that passage. Uh, Christ answers the question of this Jewish lawyer, someone steeped in Mosaic law, who seeking to justify himself asks, who is my neighbor? Christ tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And by the way, Dr. Martin Luther King preached this message on the night before he died. And what I'm about to share with you goes all credit to him. He said that, um, think about it, these two Jewish men, first a priest and then a Levite, there's a presumable, there's a Jewish man lying hurt in the road. Dr. King says, why did the priest pass him? That's like the pastor passing one of his parishioners. Right. Why didn't he stop, right? And, and he says, well, maybe, you know, he uh, didn't want to be defiled because there was Mosaic law and, and maybe he thought the guy was dead and he doesn't want to touch a dead body or whatever. 
He says, why does the Levite, that's like the deacon of the church, passing yeah. the guy, right? And, and uh, he says, well, maybe he thought it was a ruse, in Dr. King's words, that maybe the man is just playing dead, and if he goes to help, a couple of folks will jump out on the bloody pass, as it was called, and, and he'll get mugged. So maybe that's why. So Dr. King points these reasons out. But he says, at the end of the day, these two men, these two Jewish men who did not help the Jewish man on the road, they asked themselves a fundamental question. And the question was this, um, if I stop, what will happen to me? But then Dr. King points out the Samaritan is the one who stops. Now, it's hard for us, you know, uh, 2,000 years removed, but, but very simply, the Samaritans would have, this is racial tension. I mean, the, yeah. the Jews hated the Samaritans, and there's a long history of that, yeah. and this is a historically animosity, uh, animosity people group uh, from 722 B.C. So this is like, if you can put it in modern terms, this would be like a slave owner is on the road 150 years ago, laying beaten dead, uh, left for dead, and a slave stops to help him. Mm. Where the slave owners pass him. It's like, that doesn't happen. Like, that's not going to happen. But this is the story that Jesus tells. And in the telling of that story, Dr. King asked the question, why did this man stop? And he says, because he asked a fundamentally different question than the other two, where the two had said, if I stop, what will happen to me? He asked the question, if I don't stop, what will happen to him? And in that telling of the story, Jesus defines a biblical neighbor as not someone who looks like you, necessarily lives door, someone very different than you and or your people group. Some from with historic animosity. And all over the world, of course, this exists, right? Yes. Here in America, Native Americans and whites, African Americans and whites. But around the world, this historic animosity between people groups, even in Hispanic culture that runs from Puerto Ricans to Mexicans, etc., uh, these divides exist, but the biblical neighbor is someone very different than you. And what we also learn in the story is its intentionality. So the man goes not in a transactional way, but in a relational way. So even when you say, uh, what does this mean for the gospel and how do we pursue? The, the key thing, as the book talks about, is build relationships. Let, let this flow from a place of relationship yeah. versus like notching your Bible. Oh, I led another person to the Lord, right? Yeah. This is about building uh, relationships, gaining cross-cultural intelligence, uh, competence, so that we can move in and out effectively and represent Christ well to all people, whether they believe like us or not, and having the faith to believe that just that, that alone, God will do something with. That's beautiful. You know, I love how Jesus connects this desire and call to oneness and unity to gospel credibility. So you know where I'm going with this, John 17. If we look at John 17, verses 20 through 23, Two times in those three verses, verses 21 and 23, Jesus prays that they would be one. Why? So that the world might know that you sent me. He wants their credibility to be seen in their unity. And so when we are uh, deeply segregated in our worshiping together in the body of Christ, it undermines the credibility of the gospel. But likewise, the converse of that is true, is that when we are, uh, walking, worshiping, I mean, working and worshiping God together as diverse groups of people within a community that may be segregated, but somehow the gospel is brought together. It, it demonstrates something extraordinarily power, powerful. But yet, I know it's tough, right? And so let's talk about practically how do we experience this in our personal lives? How do we experience this in the church? What does effectiveness look like? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, first of all, on a personal level, I, I love what you talk about, listening, learning, lamenting, and then leading, actually doing something. And I think those are uh, it's a great acrostic to think about this. 
Uh, but for many of us, we are in a position of having now, for the first time in our lifetime, or even in American history, develop cross-cultural intelligence, competence, engagement. What folks watching should realize is this isn't about diversity for diversity's sake. This is not about political correctness. This is not just because it's nice, but it's necessary. It's not optional, it's biblical. We have to build churches that reflect the kingdom of God on earth for the credibility of the gospel going forward in the 21st century. So for the individual, um, understanding that first, that this is theological and biblical is a starting point. And I encourage anybody uh, to open their Bibles and begin to read the book of Acts and all of Paul's writings and letters to begin to saturate yourself, uh, not uh, to understand that there's more going on here than just the individual salvation, this reconciliation of diverse people in the local church at Ephesus, at Corinth, at Rome, very important. But beyond that, um, typically people have some pushback to this at a personal okay. level. So they'll say, and one, that pushback generally falls into one of three categories, right? And I think we have to challenge ourselves to disrupt our thinking. It's almost like if all you're watching is Fox News or all you're watching is MSNBC, you need to break out and expose yourself to other people's ideas to understand what they're saying because I believe everybody's right about something, right? So I'm always looking for what is it that I don't understand that this person believes, even if it's someone who believes different than me or from yeah. a different culture. But having said that, I'll just quickly say this. Um, people are going to say it's not natural. Birds of a feather flock together, right? But right, So that's the first pushback. That's the first pushback. Yeah. Generally, somehow it's going to fall to this first pushback. It's not natural. Uh, but the counter to that, of course, is when we signed up for this Christian thing, so to speak, I mean, we signed up to live in the supernatural, right? Yeah. To go above and beyond what is otherwise natural. A second general pushback is someone's going to say, well, I don't like it. You know, I just, I want to be with my own people and I, I just don't like it, you know, and and, and and being with all these diverse people on church on Sunday. But again, uh, when we open up the Word of God, nowhere in there is it about us. Uh, we're supposed to align ourselves to the Word of God, not get the church or the Word of God to align to our past experience, personality, or preferences. So that requires a mind shift. And, and it, where in this book is it about what you like, right? So, yeah. so that's how we have to rethink and, and train ourselves to think aligning to the Word of God and not getting the church to align to our preferences. And then thirdly, uh, it's just too hard. And you're right, as you said, it's very difficult. It's been difficult for the 20 plus years I've been in. It's still difficult today, and yet there is movement and there's growth. And this journey we're on, the arc of the biblical narrative tends uh, falls towards multi-ethnicity. We're going to get there, maybe not in this life, but we are getting there. And so this point about it being hard no pass for degree of difficulty in the Word of God. I'm so glad. Think about it. When the Father said, Jesus, think about it. He said, leave the culture of heaven and go to the culture of earth, and specifically the Jews. You're going to sleep on the floor, speak like a Jew, eat Jewish food, live a Jewish life, and, and, and uh, for the sake of the gospel, my people, if you will. And uh, aren't you glad Jesus didn't say, are you kidding me? There is no way I'm doing that. It's just too hard, right? So feel no pass for degree spot. of difficulty, but yeah. he set aside his position, his privilege, his power, Philippians chapter 2. He came down not to be king of the hill, but king of the world, to push us up the hill and to give us those privileges, that That's position really and power in the heavenly places. And we're called by Paul in Philippians 2 to not merely think about our own personal interests, which in the context is not just me, Mark DeMoz, but my people group's interest in the diverse church, but also think about other people groups and, again, have this attitude in us, which was also in Christ Jesus, humility and obedience for the sake of the gospel. All right, let's end on a very practical note, right? Uh, one thing that you would recommend we do on a personal level to move towards this and one thing you recommend 
the church do on a corporate level to move towards this? Yeah, so at an individual level, it begins, uh, someone once said uh, that, you know, you can't have a healthy multi-ethnic church without first having a healthy multi-ethnic life. And reaching out to people, who are you having dinner with on Friday? Who are you hanging out with on, on Sunday? I know it's COVID times that we're talking yeah. right who now. Who are you Zooming with? But yeah, who are you yeah. Zooming with? And, and this is intentional. And particularly if you're a majority culture person, I would suggest to you, don't feel weird about reaching out to people of color. Now, if you reach out in a transactional way, I say, hey, Chris, you're an African-American. Help me understand all that's going on. Okay, yeah, probably not your personal approach. But I just want, hey, Chris, you're my pastor. I just want to get to know you more. Would you mind if we maybe spend an hour and just, and, and be genuine about that. I mean, not like force it, but I'm saying that's, that's what it should be. That's what relationships are all about. So begin to think about who is not at your table. Who, who, who is not there and, and invite them in, again, not in a transactional way, but in a relational way and build that cross-cultural relationship, competence, intelligence that'll just come organically from you becoming friends with people who aren't like you and, uh, and all that. And then at a corporate level, yeah, for the church, the, the primary thing to begin as a church, in my opinion, is to study the Word of God. This is rooted in the New Testament theology, ecclesiology. As I mentioned earlier, it's not that we were taught wrong, uh, people of our age and and the church that's gone before us, it's we were taught incomplete. And like a new car, when you buy a new car, maybe it's brand new or new to you, and all of a sudden you see it everywhere. <laughs> when we open up the Word of God and we understand the Gospel of Paul, that's not competing with the Gospel, the capital G Gospel, it's rooted and built on that. But there is this good news that the church is for all people, not just some. Salvation and hope is for all people and not just some. And we start to see that you'll see it everywhere in the New Testament. And, and we let that saturate us individually and as a corporate church. And that getting the why into the corporate belly, if you will, mm -hmm. which is rooted in strong theology, as we're talking about for the sake of the gospel, that'll lead us collectively as a church to determine what are the hows and what's in our specific context to work this out. But the starting point is theology. Man, your gift, your gift to the body. You've been a huge blessing. Uh, to us here at Woodside. I'm gonna ask you to pray for us in just a moment. But again, I just wanna encourage you guys, we'll put a link to this wonderful resource. It's really an eight week study. We've been doing it uh, across our campuses in groups. It really works best if you have a diverse group to be able to talk through how do we begin to walk, uh, work and worship God together in a more effective way recognizing some of the uh, historical hurdles to that, uh, pressing into effective communication. It's such an awesome resource. Uh, I also wanna let our uh, church family know and our friends that are watching that this is a journey and it takes a lifetime. We'll ultimately never experience Revelation 7 and 9, this side of heaven, but we wanna continue to move ourselves towards that, not deifying our preferences, but ultimately laying those down so we can become fully mature in Christ and a gospel reflection to the world that has credibility that the power of the Spirit can really unite us across cultural differences. Uh, real quickly, Mark, before we end, can you pray for us? Yeah, I'd be honored to. Heavenly Father, thanks for my friend Chris. Thanks for this wonderful church here at Woodside, its legacy, its history. And in this moment, like the men of Issachar, understanding the times, knowing what is right to do, I pray for the leadership, for the people, Lord, that we would not allow this culture to further divide us so that we would further retreat into segregated silos, but in the power of the gospel and Christ lifted up, this church would draw all people, not just some, into itself. Uh, Father, I pray that for every church. I pray that my own church. You never get there. You gotta keep working at it from day to day, both individually and collectively. I pray that our time together today will be a blessing to people 
who are watching and continue to move us towards that vision of Revelation 7, 9. If the kingdom of heaven's not segregated, Father, we don't want the church to be on earth either. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, thanks for watching this edition of the, of the link. It's a very special edition. I pray that it blesses you. As always, we want your comments, so please leave your comments below. We'll have resources in the uh, post text above as well, and make sure you stay tuned. I can't wait to see you on the next edition of the link.